Hello, and welcome to Primary Immunodeficiency Questions and Answers. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the diagnosis, treatment, and quality of life of people diagnosed with primary immunodeficiency diseases. Primary immunodeficiency diseases, or PI, is a term used to describe a group of more than 350 rare chronic disorders in which part of the body's immune system is missing or functions improperly. In upcoming episodes, we will explore specific diagnoses so listeners can gain a better understanding of the symptoms and treatment options of these diseases. And now, let's begin. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of Primary Immunodeficiency Questions and Answers. I'm your host, John Boyle. Each PI diagnosis has its own causes, symptoms, and therapies. This podcast episode explores one of the more than 350 forms of PI, hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, or HLH for short. Like other PIs, HLH results in your body's immune system not working normally. In HLH, this is a result of certain white blood cells becoming overactive and attacking other cells. Today's guest is Dr. Michael B. Jordan. Dr. Jordan received his medical degree from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School and has been in practice for more than 20 years. He is currently a professor at the University of Cincinnati Department of Pediatrics and a pediatric hematologist-oncologist affiliated with Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. His research interests involve histiocytic disorders and developing novel therapies for them, regulation of the immune response, and immunotherapy of cancer. He's currently one of five doctors and researchers at Cincinnati Children's HLH Center of Excellence. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Jordan. Thank you, John. um, My pleasure. I'm actually really glad you guys are interested in HLH. Well, we're really happy to do it because of the 350 forms or so of primary immunodeficiency, HLH has not really had uh, as much light shown on it. So we're really happy to have the opportunity to uh, let the broader community know about it and also make sure that those affected by uh, HLH and their uh, communities uh, understand the condition maybe a little bit better. So uh, with that, I suppose we should start with the basics. Can you give us a couple of uh, moments uh, about exactly what HLH is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so HLH, it's a, it's a rare disorder of immune regulation. So in the case of HLH, the immune system can't really control the intensity of particular responses. So it's not autoimmune like um, other sort of uh, quote-unquote immune disorders, uh, but really it's probably best described as hyperimmune. Uh, and this lack of control is very dangerous. So an episode of HLH would typically be fatal if it's not recognized and it's not treated with immune suppression. So it's an immune deficiency because it, it uh, develops because of a lack of normal sort of control circuits in the immune system, but it's uh, not like other immune deficiencies. In fact, it's, it really belongs in uh, the sort of newer category of uh, primary immune deficiencies that is sometimes called primary immune regulatory disorders. Or PIRDS. Uh, no, very familiar with, uh, uh, with, with PIRDS. It's a fascinating area and one that really shows the the evolution of our understanding of, uh, uh, and maybe broadens our understanding of immune deficiencies and then those that are related in. Um, it's, it's been a, a very interesting to see the development there. Now, HLH has uh, been classically divided into two different forms, primary and secondary. Um, 
is that accurate enough? And uh, can you explain to our listeners the difference between the two and maybe any other variations that uh, they should be aware of? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, this you're correct. That's historically how HLH has been referred to, primary and secondary. Uh, and it's still a pretty um, common sort of dichotomy. Uh, and, you know, um, this sort of uh, categorization arises because patients with HLH really vary quite a lot. So many patients are very young infants, while other patients are older children or even adults. Uh, in some cases, the disease uh, appears to arise sort of spontaneously. Uh, in other cases, it occurs after specific infections or in association with other sorts of specific uh, disorders like cancer or, or certain rheumatologic disorders like juvenile idiopathic arthritis. Uh, and uh, in some cases, typically these young infants, uh, it tends to run in families, where in other situations, it doesn't run in families. So um, as, as you might imagine, uh, these uh, historically, before there was any real genetic understanding of HLH, these young patients where the disease ran in families and appeared to sort of arise spontaneously were called primary HLH, uh, and the other patients of the you know, various sorts were typically called secondary HLH, meaning that the HLH was there, but it was secondary to something else. Uh, and this sort of dichotomy is actually really, I think, very misleading. Uh, so you know, the, the more we understand about the genetics of HLH, the more we realize that the disease in most cases is really probably a combination of both genetic predisposing factors, sometimes very severe, but other times not so severe, and some sort of an environmental trigger. Uh, oftentimes an infection. Uh, but um, so uh, really at the part of the best way to think about it is really a spectrum. Uh, and at one end, these infants where there's disease, uh, where the disease tends to run in families, are um, probably have the most severe genetic um, sort of predisposing factors to HLH, where older patients that may develop HLH after infection um, are probably, in, in many cases, we find actually have sort of milder genetic risk factors, if you will for the disease. So it's a bit misleading. Um, and even in the quote-unquote primary patients, there's often some sort of an environmental trigger. We can't always find it, uh, but there's good reason to suspect that it's something uh, that sort of turns on the immune system because the problem here is really that the immune system doesn't turn off. Uh, and so uh, the one sort of exception to this sort of idea of a spectrum is when you have a specific different disorder such as juvenile idiopathic arthritis, somehow having that disorder predisposes patients to develop episodes of HLH, which in that context are often, by physicians, are often referred to as macrophage activation syndrome or MAS. Uh, so in that sort of scenario, I still favor the idea of calling that secondary HLH because it's secondary to another very specific and distinct um, medical diagnosis. And in fact, you actually may treat those patients a little bit differently. So it's useful to think of that as secondary. Same way, uh, it's useful to think about HLH occurring in patients who have cancer as secondary to the cancer. But in most other cases, it's probably not useful to sort of make this sort of distinction. Uh, That it really is just a question of how severe is the disease, how young is the patient. So the labels of uh, primary and secondary are uh, maybe of interest, but are not necessarily uh, uh, going to be uh, terribly weighty in terms of uh, treatment or, uh, or the, the real uh, handling of the condition. Is that accurate or uh, not? Yeah, that's actually that's a very good way to put it. Um, yeah, so in most cases, unless somebody has cancer, 
or unless they have a rheumatologic disorder, uh, the idea, this sort of idea, whether it's primary or secondary, will probably not affect the treatment uh, initially. Uh, now, many patients do require a bone marrow transplant, uh, and that sort of decision hinges upon how likely it is, whether or not, uh, how likely it is for the HLH to come back, uh, and that is definitely informed by genetic testing, uh, but, um, you know, where the more severe genetic problems are more likely to be recurrent. Um, but even then, it's not a, a clear dividing line. Well, it, that, uh, I think, is true uh, in uh, some other uh, forms of PI as they've been described, but it sounds like it's uh, <laughs> maybe even doubly true for, for HLH. Um, now, if we can go back for a moment, you talked a little bit about um, what we have been calling primary HLH and uh, the ones that are more uh, genetically uh, linked. Can you tell us a little bit more about the genetic conditions that cause HLH in terms of, uh, you know, is it uh, uh, recessive or dominant as it goes through families? What should people know who uh, may be diagnosed, have a family history, uh, or just so people can understand uh, the genetics of it a little bit more? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, um, there are a number of different uh, genes that are uh, known to cause HLH that will run in families. Uh, and in most cases, uh, it is um, uh, what we'd call autosomal recessive. Uh, in other words, you know, both parents would be carriers and they would have to pass down the, the mutation that they have inherited uh, in combination uh, you know, from both parents in order for the child to be affected. Uh, there are also a couple of forms that are uh, what we call X-linked. So in that scenario, uh, typically uh, the mother is the carrier and would pass that mutation down to boys. Uh, in the case of autosomal recessive, you know, your audience is probably uh, maybe well aware that, you know, on, on average you have, would have a one in four chance of, uh, of a child being infected. Uh, and in the case of an X-linked disorder, uh, there's a one in two chance for a boy being affected and a one in two chance for a girl being a carrier. That's uh, very, very helpful. And for uh, those listening, uh, we will try to make sure that we have some information about the inheritance patterns uh, of uh, autosomal recessive uh, versus X-linked versus some of the other pieces to help guide you along the way uh, for this and other conditions. Now, HLH is observed in infants, uh, as you mentioned, in children, uh, and my understanding is in adults of uh, really all ages here. But at what age, if you could say so, does HLH uh, most often manifest? Mm -hmm. So most patients that develop HLH will be less than a year of age. Uh, but as you're right, as you, as you mentioned, um, while most of them will be less than a year, you can find patients uh, of almost any age. So there's, there's a really um, very wide distribution. Um, it, you know, historically, it wasn't really recognized in adults. But in the last decade or so, it's become increasingly recognized. It's still very rare, uh, and there still um, are, you know, I think, probably less adults with HLH, certainly, than children. Uh, but uh, there, it really has been recognized at almost every age. Now, you've mentioned uh, an association between HLH and a couple of other uh, diagnoses or other factors there. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about uh, other common uh, conditions or uh, uh, diagnoses that 
someone may find along with uh, their HLH uh, diagnosis? What are the, the things that might lead someone to a diagnosis of HLH after seeing other issues or, or things that may, uh, from your uh, observation and through the literature, um, go hand in hand with it? Right. So, uh, you know, most, um, I would say not most, but probably the, still the majority uh, of patients that are recognized to have HLH will have it uh, due to an inborn genetic uh, problem that uh, leads to sort of the, this poor regulation of the immune response in combination with some sort of an environmental trigger, which is most often an infection. Uh, and there are many different kinds of infections that can cause it, but by far the most common are viral infections. Uh, and amongst viruses, uh, one virus called EBV is, is uh, the most common. Um, but I think your question really is, is what other sorts of conditions, like entirely different conditions, are associated with HLH? Uh, and there are, there's a short list of them. And so the, the first one would be cancer. So there are certain cancers uh, that turn on the immune system, uh, and the patient may show up with HLH, but underlying that would be a cancer. Uh, the um, the other situation uh, that uh, you would find HLH associated with a specific problem, or as I sort of um, already mentioned, are rheumatologic disorders. So most commonly uh, is what's called systemic onset juvenile idiopathic arthritis, or JIA. Uh, this condition uh, sometimes patients can show up first with, with uh, HLH or MAS as it's often called, uh, and then subsequently be found to actually have JIA. Uh, and so the, those are the two big ones. So cancers and um, rheumatologic disorders. Other, and by rheumatologic disorders, I mean the sort of disorders that are treated by a rheumatologist that tend to be thought of as autoimmune significantly, but are not necessarily always autoimmune. Uh, and there are other um, patients much more rarely than GIA that have other rheumatologic disorders that lead to HLH or MAS, including things like lupus. Uh, and then uh, another category of patients that's, that's really quite rare would be patients with metabolic uh, disorders or specific metabolic disorders that uh, in ways that aren't really understood um, probably uh, appear to cause the immune system to become sort of overly sensitive. Uh, and then finally, I think of interest in particular to the IDF uh, is that uh, HLH is, has been recognized increasingly in the last decade in patients with other primary immune deficiencies. And in that case, uh, what tends to happen is that somebody may have another completely different primary immune deficiency, and they may have an infection that because of their primary immune deficiency is really overwhelming. Uh, and, um, and, and as the immune system tries to control it but can't control it, and it sort of um, you know, keeps struggling to do so, it can lead to what looks very much like HLH. So that really is um, sort of four different sort of conditions that are associated uh, with HLH that are really sort of distinctive uh, disorders, um, you know, from, from the HLH itself. That is uh, enormously useful to know, and those distinctions, I think, are uh, going to help uh, those who uh, are just kind of getting to understand and know uh, what HLH is about. I mean, it, as you said, it's a spectrum. Uh, there is a lot to it. It is uh, not nearly as, as cut and dry as uh, uh, some other conditions might be out there. Um, now, you have alluded to this a little bit, uh, but I was hoping that you could just go into a little bit more detail 
about what exactly is happening with the immune system, the, the different parts of the immune system uh, with HLH. Uh, our community uh, is certainly familiar with uh, some of the elements, such as B cells and T cells, uh, but maybe less so with phagocytes uh, and the complement, and uh, certainly HLH is not known to all. So can you tell us a little bit about that side and, and the specific parts of the immune system that uh, are at play with HLH? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So in, in HLH, I think the best way to think about it is the immune system turns on, and it often turns on you know, appropriately in, in response to something, that if we can find that something. Uh, and normally, um, in a normal individual, uh, some of sort of the later aspects of the immune system, part of their function is actually to sort of provide feedback to some of the uh, cells that help to initiate and um, start immune responses and actually turn them off. And, and usually it turns them off by actually killing them. So the immune system, uh, you know, turns itself on. It, once it gets rolling to a, a certain degree, it actually it sort of turns itself off by killing the cells that turn it on. And when this doesn't happen, then as you might imagine, uh, the immune system just, keep, system just keeps revving, right? Like an engine where you're just pushing on the gas. Uh, and this revving itself is actually very toxic. Uh, and that is, we think, ultimately what leads to all of the, the consequences and all of the, the uh, disease features of HLH. So the immune system's not trying to attack the body, but it's um, it's just very toxic. It's like running a, running your car in a closed garage, right? All the, the fumes eventually will get to you. Uh, and uh, you know one of the the most important consequences of this sort of revving of the immune system is the is in some cases the massive overproduction of a molecule, a cytokine called interferon gamma. Uh, and uh, this interferon gamma is produced by lymphocytes. And as you might imagine, you know, the, the sort of activation that we see in HLH very, very much involves lymphocytes as opposed to other sorts of immune disorders where there are other cells that are sort of overly turned on. But what happens when the lymphocytes are so turned on and they produce so much interferon gamma is they recruit other cells sort of propagate this inflammation, and very prominently, they turn on macrophages, right? So macrophages are sort of these garbage collector cells in your body, uh, but when they get turned on by interferon gamma, they become very dangerous themselves. Uh, and another word for macrophage is histiocyte, uh, and so that's sort of a, a kind of an old-fashioned term that dates back over 100 years, uh, but it's basically the same thing as macrophage. Uh, and so when these macrophages get recruited and they begin to misbehave terribly, uh, along with the lymphocytes, they appear to cause all of the, um, the features that we can recognize as HLH, you know, damaging tissues and lowering blood counts. Uh, and, um, and so the name HLH, so hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, refers to the fact that you see lots of lymphocytes and lots of macrophages in places where they probably shouldn't be or uh, looking very angry. Uh, and some of these macrophages are eating cells kind of indiscriminately. And the ones that are eating uh, cells are, are, are sometimes referred to as hemophagocytes. And that literally means you know blood-eating cells because they're gobbling up red blood cells and, and platelets and other sorts of um, uh, blood cells of various sorts. That is uh, the most comprehensive and useful explanation of HLH that I have heard. So, Dr. Jordan, I do uh, appreciate that. But let's uh, uh, take a moment here uh, to take a break, uh, catch our breath, and then we will talk some more in just one moment. No matter where you are along your journey, IDF wants to help you manage living with primary immunodeficiency, or PI. 
As a patient-focused organization, IDF can provide you with support, education, and resources to help you cope with a wide variety of issues related to PI, including physical and mental health, insurance, and relationships. For more information, please go to www.primaryimmune.org. And welcome back. My guest, Dr. Michael Jordan, is discussing the identification and management of HLH. Now, Dr. Jordan, how can HLH be diagnosed? What is the approach to looking at it and getting it diagnosed? And are there any tests? Yeah, so, uh, you know, this is not a diagnosis that um, lay people are likely to be able to make to make uh, because of its sort of complicated nature. So I can tell you that most patients with HLH um, usually appear to everybody to be very sick, uh, like they have an infection, whether or not we can actually find the infection. Uh, they almost always have fever and look quite ill, and um, uh, you know, parents will take their, their, their child to the doctor quite you know, promptly, I think, in this, in this context. Uh, and then uh, the way it's identified uh, is that um, uh, physicians will obviously want to do blood tests when somebody looks really sick, and typically they'll find low blood counts, which is unusual in the context of, say, a, you know, an, an unremarkable infection. Uh, and if they look for them, they will also find very high markers of inflammation, uh, and then uh, which would uh, likely trigger further testing, which would include um, sort of specific tests uh, to test the function of the immune system uh, and eventually to do genetic testing as well. And in, in the end, it's really all about pattern recognition. So there are multiple features that physicians can recognize, many of which, you know, through blood tests of HLH, none of which are really all that specific, but they're very unusual in combination, and it's that unusual combination that leads to the diagnostic. So there's really no single test that tells you you have HLH, uh, and sometimes it takes, um, in addition to uh, blood testing, there may also need to be uh, biopsies, like a bone marrow biopsy, or even scans to make sure there's nothing else uh, going on, because the picture can frequently be confusing. Now, HLH is not a cancer, but historically its treatment approach has been similar and has had some parallels to that of some forms of cancer, such as leukemia and lymphoma, because many of the same drugs are often used. Can you tell us a little bit about the therapies that are commonly used today to treat HLH, and uh, if you've seen in uh, your time uh, any changes to the treatment and approach to treating? Yeah, so the uh, the traditional and the most standard way to treat HLH, as you mentioned, does include chemotherapy that uh, is um, more commonly used to treat um, cancers such as leukemia and lymphoma. And if you think about it, the, the disease really um, springs from a lack of normal killing within the immune system, and chemotherapy kills cells. So, in fact, it actually makes a lot of sense that chemotherapy can be helpful in treating HLH. Uh, in essence, the, the chemotherapy drugs and the one I'm referring to in particular is a drug called etoposide, uh, acts kind of like a rough replacement for the normal killing, normal, more precise killing function uh, that the immune system is often lacking in these patients. Uh, but the, um, you know, it's not just a single drug that's used to treat HLH. So there's etoposide is uh, sort of been the traditional backbone of therapy, and it's a chemotherapy drug. Uh, almost all patients also receive corticosteroids, so medications like prednisone or dexamethasone. Uh, and if they have an infection, uh, if they have uh, some other 
well, if they have an infection, then uh, you know, a medicine to specifically treat that as well um, uh, can be helpful. In addition to etoposide and steroids, uh, there are other medications that uh, eliminate T cells broadly. And these medications um, are, there's two of them. One of them is called um, alemtuzumab, or sometimes it's referred to as Campath, or another medication, thymoglobulin, or sometimes also called ATG. And these are antibodies that sort of very broadly and diffusely eliminate uh, T cells, which are the cells, one of the cells that tends to drive this disease process. Um, these are not used as, um, as commonly as etoposide, but they can be effective, uh, though they do uh, make the patient very immune suppressed, and so they have to be used very carefully. Uh, but um, uh, there's a new drug that actually was just approved in November of 2018. Uh, it's a medication called imipalumab. The brand name is called Gamifant. Uh, and this is a medication that is a targeted medicine that specifically blocks interferon gamma, which is, as I mentioned, that cytokine that is so toxic in this context. And so this is a completely different way to treat HLH. Uh, we're basically, by blocking interferon gamma, uh, you might say sort of defanging this sort of uh, immune activation, you know, taking away the most dangerous and toxic part of the immune response. As I mentioned, the drug was uh, just approved by the FDA uh, for use in the U.S., but it was specifically approved uh, for what we call second-line therapy. So there was a clinical trial that is just recently uh, closed uh, testing the drug, and most of the patients enrolled on the trial um, have uh, were treated after they had failed other treatments, other medications like like or uh, corticosteroids, uh, and so the, um, so the medication is currently approved for use in second line. Uh, there is ongoing testing to assess its suitability to be used uh, up front. That is extremely clear. Thank you for that. Now, Dr. Jordan, you mentioned uh, just a little while ago bone marrow transplants. Uh, obviously, some conditions within our community, uh, bone marrow transplants are, are very well known as a uh, part of their therapy. Can you talk a little bit about the role that a bone marrow transplant uh, might play uh, with a, uh, an HLH patient? Uh, yeah, so as you might imagine, uh, if there is a, um, a sort of a regulatory loop or a switch in the immune system that's broken, as is the case in patients with severe genetic HLH-related abnormalities, um, when the immune system turns on, it gets out of control. Uh, even if you can treat that, uh, treat that episode of immune overactivation, uh, there may be another thing you know, next year or next month that may turn the immune system on in a very harmful way. And so there are many patients in which uh, they uh, would experience repeated episodes of HLH. And even if they're treated well, these, each of these episodes is extremely dangerous. So in the end, if it looks like a patient is likely to have recurrent HLH, then it's actually better, safer, to take the, that child to bone marrow transplant to sort of fix the underlying problem. So how does this look? In, in general, a patient will appear with HLH, they'll be extremely sick, and they'll need the sorts of therapies that we were just describing, etoposide or imipalumab or other medications, to help sort of um, um, put out the fire, as it will. Uh, and once the immune system is reasonably, or the immune activation, rather, is reasonably under control, and it looks like, the, uh, based on genetic testing usually, uh, that uh, the child is at high risk of having HLH come back repeatedly, uh, then, um, then the next appropriate step to pursue is bone marrow transplant, again, to sort of fix the underlying problem in the immune system.
And so um, most patients that have, uh, sorry, patients are actually all patients with familial HLH, and in fact, probably most patients with HLH uh, uh, end up in a situation where they, they really would probably uh, need to go to bone marrow transplant in order to survive long-term. And for those who are listening, uh, for whom bone marrow transplantation is a consideration uh, or are concerned about that, one thing to note is, of course, uh, that there are other forms of primary immunodeficiency uh, for which a bone marrow transplant is the recommended uh, course of treatment. Uh, and so even though HLH is rare, uh, there are, uh, let's say, cousins out there in the primary immunodeficiency community uh, who will basically have gone through something very, very similar uh, and can really share that journey. So if this is a concern for you or something that you're facing, uh, know that there are a number of people out there uh, who have at least some experience and can commiserate and can support you uh, if that becomes uh, an area that your family has to explore. Now, given the challenges in uh, diagnosing uh, HLH, is there any general advice to the medical community, to those who might be uh, uh, seeing an HLH patient without knowing it and knowing that not everyone uh, has this area of focus, uh, any general items that you would want highlighted out there that might help uh, other providers move more rapidly to diagnosing a patient with HLH? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, um, uh, you know, in general, I would say uh, when a physician sees a sick child who has low blood counts or, in some cases, has a very um, sick liver or, uh, in, in um, a few cases, has um, um, significant inflammation in the brain, uh, that they uh, really should think about HLH. And the way to, to first start thinking about HLH is to uh, send off testing to look at inflammation uh, in the body. And it's usually evident that the inflammation is inordinately elevated. Um, there are, uh, so the, here in Cincinnati, we formed what we call the HLH Center of Excellence. Uh, and we have a website. It's easily you know, seen uh, or found via uh, Google. On the website, there are actually some specific tools and advice for physicians, including a diagnostic algorithm, which really has sort of the more useful details that sort of help, uh, help you understand when to think more seriously about HLH and what sort of workup to do to investigate the possibility. No, I appreciate the response, so that's very helpful. Now, uh, as we wrap up, I wanted to uh, uh, just find out a little bit about, from your perspective, uh, what does the future look like for HLH? What research is being done right now, and where might you expect things to go in the years to come? So um, HLH historically was, um, uh, nobody really knew how to treat it uh, before the 80s. Uh, and in the, in the 80s, um, there was international effort to really sort of validate and identify some sort of a treatment. And that's where the etoposide-based therapies came from. And that was a, a big step forward. Uh, but as I, as I mentioned, this is chemotherapy, and it's not, it's targeted in a way, but it's not a really targeted therapy. Uh, and so what's emerging right now uh, are alternative 
uh, and sort of targeted approaches, specifically targeting things such as interferon gamma that are appear to be causing most of the, the trouble in HLH. Uh, and so there was a, a, a trial that lasted about five years that has just finished just very recently. And there's a new trial that's opening at centers in the U.S. to continue to study imipalumab, this time uh, trying to look at it more closely as a therapy to start with as opposed to a second-line therapy. Uh, there are um, other trials that are opening or being planned to try to investigate other medications to treat HLH, again, more sort of targeted medications. So medications, as in this case, that specifically target the signaling that underlies how interferon gamma um, does what it does, along with uh, um, other cytokine signaling. Uh, you know, future research in HLH, I think, also will be aimed at trying to sort of define the different variations of HLH. So we think we understand the basic familial uh, genetic forms of HLH better than the other forms uh, where HLH is associated with other disorders like GIA or cancer. There's still a lot to be learned there for sure. Uh, and there's even um, what appears to be, it looks very much like HLH in the context of immunotherapies for cancer. So this so-called cytokine release syndrome that uh, is... Um, famous amongst physicians, maybe amongst the audience as well, uh, when patients receive medications uh, like um, engineered T-cells to try to fight their leukemia, sometimes these, these medications uh, also sort of overshoot and lead to uh, an HLH-like condition. So um, there'll be, um, I think, lots of interest in the future to try to understand how does HLH and these toxicities from immunotherapies overlap and what can be done, uh, you know, looking in both directions. So, but overall, I think uh, for patients with HLH specifically, really uh, the, the future therapies will be based on how do we more efficiently target the parts of the immune system that are causing most of the, the difficulties um, because there's still a long ways to go. Uh, there are still patients despite um, the new therapy and traditional therapies that are not surviving with HLH and it's still a, um, a concern and there's definitely room for improvement. Well, I think that that is a note to go out on. So, uh, Dr. Jordan, I really appreciate your taking the time to uh, share your insight and, uh, and your expertise uh, here today. Uh, this is a rare among the rare disorders, and so I think that you've given our listeners a, a lot to, uh, to digest and to, uh, to look up online. Uh, go to primaryimmune.org uh, for, uh, for more information, obviously. Uh, but we just really appreciate uh, your uh, taking time out of your schedule, uh, joining us today and, and sharing your thoughts. Uh, again, thank you so very much. Oh, well, it's my pleasure, John. Thank you for your interest and for this opportunity to uh, talk about HLH. And many thanks to our listeners for being with us today. We hope that you'll join us for future episodes that focus on specific diagnoses of primary immunodeficiency. And until then, all of us here at IDF want to wish you good health and strength. And remember, you're never alone. There's always people out there who want to help. We all just have to find each other. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation. If you like our show and want to learn more, please subscribe to this podcast so future episodes will be sent to your device automatically, and leave us a review on iTunes so others will discover this podcast. To learn more about primary immunodeficiency and the PI community, please visit the IDF website at www.primaryimmune.org. 
And if you have a question you would like answered, email us at info at primaryimmune.org. Thanks for tuning in.